Imagine, walking in a quiet forest in the middle of the night. The stars are shining, and peace is all abundant. You think to yourself that this place is both beautiful and eerie at the same time. All of a sudden, you're drawn towards something that is calling your name. You can't describe it, but you feel that you should go deeper into the woods. As you go deeper into the woods, you see a mysterious cloaked figure in the clearing that is calling your name. Before you can rationalize what is happening, you all suddenly wake up from your bedroom. You think it was just a dream, but you realize that you don't remember returning home and going into your bedroom. All you can remember is being in the woods, meeting a mysterious cloaked figure that knew your name. This is one of the many cases of an odd event that happened in San Antonio between the 1950s to the 1960s. In this season one final episode, I will explore a mysterious event that many witnesses claim truly happened within Almost Basin Woods. In Almost Basin Woods, laid a mysterious secret school that was supposedly run by extraterrestrials. I will also explore the fascinating history of the UFO phenomenon that is still happening in the city of San Antonio, Texas, to this very day. I am your host, Streetlight Historian, and this is the Hidden Histories of San Antonio, Texas. understand this hidden and forgotten historical event, one must look at the fascinating history of scientific research on extraterrestrial life that took place in San Antonio, Texas from 1947 to 2021. Unsurprisingly, when the School of Aviation Medicine was stationed in San Antonio, Texas from the 1920s to 2011, it became the first military institution to research the possible existence of extraterrestrial life. Under the leadership of Dr. Hubert Struggled from 1947 to his retirement in 1968, Dr. Strockold would do a variety of scientific research into seeing if life could possibly survive beyond Earth. Many historians have claimed that Dr. Hubert Strockold coined the term astrobiology when describing his research to the public in 1947. In recently declassified government documents, it was revealed that Dr. Hubert Strockold believed that Mars once held an advanced extraterrestrial civilization when examining the mysterious canals found on Mars. Dr. Strockold was open to the idea 
that there could be advanced extraterrestrial civilizations in our Milky Way galaxy. Beyond Brooks School of Aerospace Medicine, from the 1970s to the 2020s, universities such as CTSA, Incarnate Word, Our Lady of the Lake, and Texas A&M at San Antonio, Texas, have played a major role in scientific research of extraterrestrial life. From engineering to biological research, these universities have helped our planet have a better understanding of how life could survive beyond Earth. But behind the scenes of this fascinating research, there does, in fact, lay rumors of secret research going on within the city of San Antonio, Texas. One of the most shocking rumors I have ever found was on the School of Aerospace Medicine's Astrobiology Research Department, where supposedly it was rumored that the School of Aerospace Medicine archives had a secret file on alien autopsy research done at Brooks Air Force Base back in the 1960s. The rumor begins with President John F. Kennedy visiting Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas on November 21, 1963. The official purpose of this visit was to dedicate several new facilities which would be dedicated to exploring the potential health hazards faced by astronauts in outer space. In this rumor, some people believe that the actual reason for JFK's visit was that he wanted to see an alien body that was supposedly stored at the School of Aerospace Medicine at Brooks Air Force Base. The main piece of evidence for this fascinating rumor is that the fact that JFK is known to have had a closed-door meeting with Major General Theodore C. Bedwell, Jr., who was the deputy surgeon and chief at wright Patterson Air Force Base from 1946 to 1947. People have claimed that the alien corpse recovered from the Roswell crash was taken to wright Patterson for analysis and seen as Bedwell was stationed at Brooks Air Force Base in a major medical capacity, he would have probably seen one of these ET bodies at the School of Aerospace Medicine since the school was researching astrobiology. Some people believe that the evidence to support an alien autopsy being done at Brooks Air Force Base is the oral account from Major General Sam Weaver's grandson, Bruce Weaver, who claims that the School of Aerospace Medicine did an autopsy of alien Bigfoot back in 1962. According to Bruce's account, things start getting seriously strange when an unnamed member who worked at Brooks Air Force Base quietly told Major General Sam in secret about an odd file he had seen among the hundreds of nebulous classified documents kept stashed at Brooks Archives. Most of these files discussed how NASA and the military were working to keep astronauts safe and healthy, but this specific file contained information about astrobiology autopsy. This bizarre document was quite huge. It contained lurid, full-color photographs of the autopsy of what appeared to be a hairy humanoid creature. This monster had been found one morning in 1962 by members of a security team within the thicket force that surrounded NASA's historic John H. Glenn Research Center. This Ohio Research Center was where the liquid hydrogen rocket engines used in the Apollo missions were developed. The story of how the corpse of a Sasquatch came to rest in the forest around this famous site is a strange one, to say the least. On the night before the discovery was made, the hapless security staff had observed fast-moving orbs of blue light flitting in and out of the trees encircling the research base at alarming low altitude. Despite not seemingly being hostile, 
these alarming apparitions were obviously controlled by some kind of intelligent force, and the guards quickly panicked. According to Major General Sam Weaver's version of events, which he told to his grandson, some sort of alteration took place in which the guards ended up discharging the bullets at these light orbs. The next morning, the guards went out into the forest to scour the ground for any evidence of their bizarre experience. When they found more than they bargained for, the body of a colossal, hairy humanoid creature lay there on the ground before them. Although Bruce Weaver felt the need to specify that the files never referred to the creature as Bigfoot due to the lack of usage of that term in popular culture at that time, that would probably be the best term to describe the entity. His grandfather made it very clear to him that whatever it was definitely wasn't a gorilla despite his resemblance to one, and judging by description of the body that will come later, it seems unlikely that it was an unknown primate either. They sent the body to Brooks Air Force Base for an autopsy since the school focused on astrobiology. According to Major General Sam's colleague, the file detailed that the monster was truly gigantic in size. It was 9 feet tall and weighed over 500 pounds. It had 32 teeth and vocal cords that were noted as being similar to those of humans. This could have been a mundane unknown species of ape, but things then took an even stranger turn when the doctors involved in performing this astonishing autopsy found that a strange metallic device had seemingly been previously surgically implanted in the lower section of the creature's left arm. The scientists theorized that this might have been some kind of tracking device, but nothing concrete was ever discovered about the alarming mechanism. After the autopsy, the body was then sent to Wright Harrison, where it would safely be stored for future research. After hearing this account, Major General Sam decided to look for the documents of this fascinating claim. Sadly, he learned that the file on the ape creature was immediately removed from Brooks' archives and was sent to Wright Patterson Air Force Base after it was discovered that the file was not supposed to be in Brooks' archives. Seeing that he would not be able to have proof of this account, Major General Sam decided to keep this story quiet until decades later when he decided that his children had the right to know about what he had learned while serving at Brooks Air Force Base. Although this was an oral account, the connections with the school's astrobiology research to Brooks Air Force Base having the largest ape research laboratory in the world, to Major General Theodore C. Bedwell Jr. having connections with both the 1947 Roswell incident and overseeing the medical department of Wright Patterson was stationed at Brooks Air Force Base during the 1960s to finally Major General Sam Weaver admitting that there was an alien autopsy taking place at Brooks Air Force Base. It's very possible that such events could have taken place. It's also very possible that this case may have played a role in the rise of Bigfoot encounters in San Antonio, Texas from the late 1960s to the late 1970s. Now that we have gone into the meat of these interesting topics, let's dive into the mysterious school that was run by extraterrestrials during the 1950s. From the 1950s to the present, San Antonio has documented many claims of supposed UFOs flying in the Texas sky. From flying saucers to triangles, San Antonio has become a hotbed for UFO encounters. While some of these cases can be explained as natural phenomenon or misidentification, there is one particular case that many San Antonians are unaware of. In the 1950s, just five miles north of downtown San Antonio, lay a small town known as Alamo Heights. Alamo Heights was a small town that officially was incorporated into the city of San Antonio, Texas by the 1940s. 
within Alma Heights, famous institutions such as Incarnate Word University and the Alma Heights Independent School were the hallmark of the town. Beyond its institutions and growing suburbs lay a mysterious force known as Almost Basin. Next to this force was a cement factory that soon became abandoned after the company went out of business. The community of Alamo Heights in the 1950s was a middle-class area where it would eventually grow until the 2000s. Reports of mysterious things happening at the Almost Basin started to begin in the 1950s. People who lived in that area during the 1950s began reporting to see weird lights that flew around the woods. They would also hear weird noises coming from the woods. It became so prevalent that the parents told their children to stay away from those woods during the night. It wouldn't be known until famous American writer Woodley Streber published his experience of that wooded area in his 1997 book, The Secret School, Preparation for Contact. In his book, Mr. Streeper reveals that, as a kid in the summer of 1954, he had a paranormal experience in the woods of Almost Basin. While returning home at night, he felt something calling him into the woods. He followed where he would encounter the mysterious cloaked figure. From his description, the cloaked figure looked like a tall, female, gray alien. This mysterious figure told him to follow her to her school. Mr. Streeper claimed, that he was in some sort of trance and agreed to follow her. Through a clearing, Mr. Streeper claimed he saw a building with a group of children waiting for him. From here, Mr. Streeper claimed that the mysterious cloaked figure was not alone and other gray aliens appeared out from the building. This group of visitors, as Mr. Streeper called them, told the children that they had been enrolled into their school. They would teach them many things that many children of this world have not learned. And so, from every night, Mr. Streeper and the children would leave their home every night and participate in many of the school's lessons, from examining alien technology to learning some interesting puzzles. By the time that summer was going to end, the visitors revealed to the kids that they had graduated from their school. As the kids were taken back to their homes, Mr. Streeper claims that the cloak woman erased his memories and would not remember those events until 40 years later. As crazy as this story might sound, it turns out there have been other witnesses that validate Mr. Streeper's story. The witness I interviewed wanted his identity to remain anonymous, so I changed his name to Henry and will read his account from the interview I did with him. For introductions, I met Henry when I was doing some historical research on the history of Lackland Air Force Base. Henry served in the United States Air Force from the 1960s to the 1990s. While I was talking with him about the history of astrobiology at Brooks Air Force Base, I was given the opportunity to hear his account of what had happened to him back in the summer of the 1950s. From Henry's account, while exploring the almost Basin woods, he encountered a mysterious cloak figure that was not human. From his descriptions, it was a tall, female, gray alien that told him that she was looking for him. All of a sudden, Henry was soon in a trance-like state and began to follow the mysterious figure. This mysterious figure took him to the strange building that seemed to have been placed there recently. He also saw many kids outside the building playing. The mysterious figure told him to go play with the kids and he followed her orders. As soon as the kids were finished playing, the mysterious figure told the children that they had been chosen to become her students for this summer. She told them that they would learn many things that not many kids of this world have learned yet. She also told the children that they would need to keep 
this a secret from their parents because the school that they were going to was a secret school. Throughout the summer, Henry will quietly leave his house at night to go to the secret school, where he learned about physics, astronomy, and aerospace engineering. He even remembered the times when the teacher brought over a flying saucer to land at the school for one of their lessons. He also remembers that there were gray alien children enrolled in the secret school as well. Henry claims that he felt no fear going to the secret school and playing with the gray alien children. At the end of that summer, many of the students had graduated and were taken back to their houses. But for Henry, it was a different story. He claimed that the teacher of the school wanted him to continue with their education. So every summer during the 1950s, he would be enrolled into their secret school until he began high school. His last year at the secret school was in 1960. He remembers having to say goodbye to his alien friends that he knew he would never see again. As for the great alien teacher, she told him that they will not erase his memories, for she believed that he will keep his experience a secret, to which he agreed to. As he left the school and headed home, he said one final goodbye to the teacher when he reached the end of the forest. It was a heartbreaking moment in my life that I would never get to see these people again, Henry claims. Before the teacher left, she gave him a hug goodbye and told him that he was an incredible student and she would never forget him. As he left the woods, he turned around to see her walk slowly back into the woods, never to be seen again. As Henry went through high school, he still thought about the secret school. When he graduated high school and was going to the United States Air Force boot camp, he wanted to see the secret school one last time. As he reached his destination, he soon saw that the building was gone. The only remnants of that school was the rock circle he had made when he was enrolled. They truly did leave that area clean. The only evidence was the rock circle I had made with the kids. But Sally, that got destroyed and won the floods back in the 1970s. The only thing left to remember that school are the memories and friendships I made there. It was truly indeed a secret school that changed me forever, quoted Henry. I asked Henry what the extraterrestrial schools of teaching them this information were. He responded with, I believe that they wanted to create a human generation that had more knowledge than the previous generation when it came to science and technology. As for their end goal, he still doesn't know. But he will never forget them and the incredible knowledge he has learned from them. Because of this knowledge, Henry was able to excel in high school and his job in the United States Air Force. I asked him why he decided to reveal this fascinating story to me, to which he responded, I wanted my children and grandchildren to know that they are not alone in the universe. And since you're a historian, I thought having an oral historical account might help in researching this mysterious event that took place in San Antonio, Texas during the 1950s, quoted Henry. After hearing this, he informed me that he would be giving a lecture to an organization that was researching the existence of extraterrestrial life and understanding the UFO phenomenon. I asked him what that organization name was, and he told me that the organization name was the Mutual UFO Network, also known as MUFON. I was fortunate enough to be able to hear Mr. Henry's lecture and had the opportunity to meet with the director of Texas chapter of MUFON. 
With this permission, I was able to have an opportunity to interview him and ask him what are MUFON's goals in today's scientific research on extraterrestrial life. Well, I want to thank you for coming out here and spending some time with me, and hopefully I can give you something you can use. But I'm Ken Jordan. Uh, I am currently the MUFON State Director, uh, and uh, we are in San Antonio, if you didn't know that. And um, I was born and raised here in San Antonio, went to school here, went to college here. I joined the military here and ultimately had my last assignment here and retired from the military here. But besides being a, a military officer, uh, my first half of my military career, I was in the National Guard. So I've also been a businessman, a general contractor. I've been a fire chief. Uh, I've been a lot of things. But uh, now that I'm retired, I'm finding that uh, researching and studying this UFO phenomenon has really become really extremely interesting for me. So. That, that's a great question. Well, first of all, MUFON, uh, if you don't know what MUFON is, it's an acronym that stands for the Mutual UFO Network. And uh, MUFON was originally founded uh, back in 1969 uh, as the Midwest UFO Network. Uh, for four states in the Midwest, by 1972, it had grown so big, uh, it just exploded across the country, that uh, they actually changed the name to the Mutual UFO Network. It is today uh, the largest uh, UFO research and reporting uh, organization in the world. Uh, we have over 5,000 members almost 300 field investigators around the world. And out of that 300, I would imagine 200 are still very active. So, uh, so MUFON's been around for a long time. There's some other very good uh, UFO research organizations in the world, especially here in the States. Uh, but MUFON by far has set the standard and uh, probably will continue to set the standard in the future. San Antonio is one of the oldest continually working chapters in the MUFON uh, network. Uh, one of the original founders of MUFON uh, actually lived here in San Antonio, actually in Seguin, Texas. And uh, he brought MUFON headquarters to Seguin, where it stayed for years until he retired. So uh, MUFON has been in San Antonio for a long time. It wasn't really big until recently uh, when the uh, UFO phenomenon, the whole topic, kind of exploded about 10 years ago. Uh, and then San Antonio MUFON actually started growing to the point now that we have, before COVID hit, uh, we, were, we were approaching 200 attendees at our monthly uh, open meetings. So MUFON has grown uh, tremendously over the last uh, four or five years. Well, what has it done for San Antonio? Well, I think MUFON uh, has always been known in San Antonio, but not as well as it should be uh, until we had uh, some news coverage 
and the word got out that we were here, and that's why we exploded so much. But we have brought to San Antonio the understanding of what the whole UFO phenomenon is about, which was difficult for San Antonio, uh, since we're predominantly, we have an awful lot of Hispanic influence here, uh, even those of us who are Caucasian are mostly Hispanic in a way that we thought, we think and feel. Uh, so it was hard to uh, for people to come forward and show the interest in the topic. That has changed a lot over the last few years and uh, has become much more acceptable. Uh, but we've had meetings and, and uh, brought the general public in, uh, introduced them to the phenomenon. Uh, but what is most intriguing and I find fascinating is the number of people in the San Antonio area that feel they have been visited or actually abducted by an alien race. Uh, a lot more than you would ever think. And up until recently, these people had nowhere to go to tell their story or no one to talk to to find out if what they experienced was real or if they were crazy. They, they, and, and some of them would actually go crazy because nobody believed them. But Buffon is here uh, to, to, with an open ear, without judgment, uh, have somebody to talk to. And maybe we can give them some help. Well, that, that's a hard question because there are so many over the uh, pushing, uh, pushing nine years now I've been doing this. Um, I've had a lot of really good cases, and uh, but there are several that stand out, and the one that always stands out most uh, for all of us as investigators is that first case you get that after all you do all your due diligence and all your research and all your investigative work and your photo analysis and your interviews and everything, you determine that it was in fact a real UFO, not a like the sky or, or a photo anomaly but a real UFO and my first one was uh, uh, actually 2017 it was that long before I had one that I could actually say that is a real no kidding UFO and it was down south of here uh, uh, around Pleasanton uh, it was seen by a, uh, a, a construction worker a plumber uh, was filling up his gas at the gas station and he saw this strange object across the highway in another field skirting the tree line. So he took out his his iPhone and started photographing it and videoing it. He did an excellent job of capturing it, so he had crystal clear video and ultimately uh, photo evidence of this thing. And... Uh, I could not figure out what it was. Nobody could figure out what it was, so we we classified it as we got the real UFO. And it looked donut-shaped. Uh, and uh, so we call it the, the, a donut UFO. It turns out it wasn't really a donut. It had a uh, something on the back of it that was probably part of its propulsion system that made it look like it had a void there. So it looked like a donut we got, we had more cases after that that came in over the last couple of years with better photography 
and we could see uh, more of how, how it was built. That turned into be a flat, and uh, we have seen those things all over Central Texas. They've been seen in New Jersey, New York, UK, Ireland, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. And we think it's a type of a scout craft. And last year we had a lady uh, out in the ranch lands between Houston, San Antonio area, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, actually photographed a mothership that was actually expelling these things out of the craft. And it looked like what everybody else had been reporting. So we got that much more exciting. And, uh, and about six months ago, uh, we had a gentleman in Austin that saw one at extremely close range. Wasn't able to get a photograph of it, but we were able to send him some of the videos and stuff that we had, and he confirmed that's exactly what he saw. In fact, he gave us a very good uh, drawing of what he got. And, uh, so, yeah, so we had that. So that, that's been exciting. But I think it's going to top it all off is what we have going on right now. And I'm calling this the cases of Tic Tacs over Texas. We seem to be having a flap of Tic Tacs, like what the Navy's reported on both the east and west coast to ATIP. Uh, uh, because of ATIP, they, they came forward. Um, we're seeing what appears to be at this time, which the, the investigations are still going on. Uh, it looks like we got Tic Tacs over Texas. We've had spottings with video evidence. Uh, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, San Angelo, San Antonio, uh, and two other cities up around the Dallas area. And uh, if our investigation proves out, uh, it probably is going to go viral. We have six cases. We uh, are still working on five of them. One, we determined through photo analysis of what in fact is going on. High up. But if these tic tacs work out, this is going to be probably one of the more exciting cases that we've had in a very long time. Okay, well, <laughs> like everybody in ufology, we went nuts because finally we had government disclosure. We had something released by DOD. And at that time, we didn't realize that. The Navy Department had seen these things on a regular basis back to 2004. So, but by 2008, 2017, they were encountering these things almost on a daily basis on both the East and West Coast. So it was a very exciting time. And I, I think, I don't know who's more excited, us or Richard Dolan, because Richard thought something was going to happen. But when nothing happened, it really didn't surprise Richard Dolan. But uh, we thought we were going to have some kind of disclosure. It didn't get the notoriety that we wanted uh, to the general public through the mainstream media, but it was it was the first official government release of uh, of something unknown. They, even though they didn't say it was extraterrestrial, they did say that it did not appear to be of Earth origin. That's close enough. 
So we'll get to see what happens next time. And, uh, and of course, we got the Texas tic tac thing going on right now. And if I can tie those in with what the Navy saw, both on east and west fleets, uh, it might be even more exciting. So we're, we're hoping that the Texas, Texas tic tacs uh, are going to make it through the, through the scrutiny. And after I get done with them, we're going to send them to MUFON special teams, and they're going to tear them apart. And if it survives that, we'll have a pretty exciting uh, case that we can add to what ATIP has done. And, and I think ATIP did a good job, given given their scope of work and their their budget. Uh, I think it was probably probably the best thing that's happened to uh, ufology so far. So. I wish uh, I wish Luis would have stayed with it longer and, and developed more out of it, but I can understand why he left and went off on his own and doing what he's doing. So. Well, that's a tough nut. Um, the hardest people to convince that uh, that UFOs and extraterrestrial life outside Earth exist are the uh, devout religious especially Christians, and I happen to be one, and uh, the academic community, because they're scientists. And the problem with ufology and, and the study of UFOs and the research of them is we have no control group that we can put our hands on. That is publicly uh, available. Uh, it, it turns out that it's there, you just got to know where to go to get it. Uh, so right now, Mostly what we we have to go with in our research is historical data, eyewitness um, reports, uh, and these are often credible people. And even though we don't have a control group to, uh, to use a pure scientific method on, it's pretty darn close. But as far as what's going to go on in the future, um, there has been disclosure. It just hasn't been accepted. Uh, but at some point in time, it, it will be, and I hope sooner than later. But unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen where, uh, where Watu is going to land in front of the uh, the White House, down the saucer, and a big giant alien going to come out, and he's going to say, we're here to uh, help you uh, keep from blowing your own world up. So that's not going to happen. It's going to get dribbled out a little bit at a time. But at some point in time, academics are going to realize that what people like MUFON and NOFOLK and the other research agencies over time have discovered uh, is actually real. And I think at some point our extraterrestrial brothers will become comfortable enough with us to go ahead and, and, and do some public disclosure. Right now, they're scared to death of because they're so violent. You know, they can't trust it. So, I don't blame them. From San Antonio's secret school to its public and secret history of scientific research on extraterrestrial life, it's truly a crown jewel that has become a forgotten history to the city. From its military history to its paranormal history, San Antonio is a city full of hidden history that should not only be promoted to the public, but should also be researched by the academic community as well. Hopefully, this season has created 
new interest in researching San Antonio's hidden histories. As for me, Streetlight Historian, I've decided that I'll be taking a break for a while from my research. Maybe next year, I will begin a new season on other hidden histories of San Antonio that have not been covered in this season. I believe I will end this video with what Mr. Ken informed me about how MUFON will continue after the ETs reveal themselves to the public. Eventually, they will come out and, and let themselves be known publicly. Uh, they are here now. They're walking among us. They work among us. <clears throat> because most of them are human. Look just like us. Uh, for the most part. And uh, when when they think that we have matured enough as a planet, uh, they'll come forward and reveal themselves, and we will have that that motion picture first contact event. So, but that's going to happen. A lot of people are asking, well, what's going to happen to MUFON and Norfolk and some of the other organizations once that takes place? And aliens come out and we start interacting with extraterrestrials on a regular basis. Well, MUFON will continue, uh, even though we may not be out looking for evidence of ET that we can prove their existence. And more importantly, get their technology into our research and development so we can get that technology to work on behalf of mankind on Earth. I think MUFON will probably evolve into a monitoring organization to watch what big government does with the information and with the technology that they get. And try to be sure it gets out to the general public and doesn't get hidden in some secret government program or the very elite get to have that technology and the rest of the people on the planet continue to suffer the way they are. Mufon will be around even after it's closed. summer of 2006, the Institute of Texas Culture made history by becoming the first American institution to present a Bigfoot exhibit titled Bigfoot in Texas that took the subject matter seriously. The Institute of Texas Culture presented their argument that the existence of Bigfoot was real by using archival photos, giant footprints, casting, and video interviews with eyewitnesses that claim they saw the elusive creature. Many of these visitors, including myself, got the opportunity to examine their findings and listen to many lectures that were presented, from academic professionals presenting their scientific findings, to Native American chiefs telling the public their oral history of the Sasquatch creatures that lived in the Texas woods. This exhibit is believed by many to be one of the museum's most visited and successful exhibit they had released. This exhibit was so profound that schools from around the United States wanted to visit the museum to see this fascinating exhibit. While the exhibit was a success, behind the scenes, those within the Institute of Texas Culture were a bit disappointed that the exhibit was not fully completed. Those in charge of historical research were trying to track down a Bigfoot case that would have shocked the city to its very core. But sadly, were unsuccessful in the end. 
The case they wanted to promote in their exhibit was when a couple of Bigfoots terrorized the community of Kelly Air Force Base back in the 1970s. I am your host, Streetlight Historian, and today I will present to you a hidden historical event that caused Kelly Air Force Base to put out a curfew for fear of violent Bigfoots roaming Kelly Air Force Base in August of 1976. These creatures will eventually be dubbed by those living in Kelly during that time period as Kelly's Bigfoots. August of 1976, the first eyewitness to report seeing a Bigfoot near Kelly Air Force Base was Mr. Ed Oliveri, who lived at the south side of Kelly Air Force Base. Mr. Oliveri stated that he was getting ready to go to work early one morning when his dog began barking excitedly in the backyard. Going outside to investigate, Mr. Oliveri said he was looking over at the back of his fence towards a wooden area along Quintana Road when a train whistle sound from the nearby Missouri Pacific tracks. The animal must have been hiding or lying down because when the whistle blew, it started running. It looked like some kind of Bigfoot monster. It was about seven feet tall with short brown hair over its body. It was running on two legs like a man, but a little more awkwardly. Mr. Alvary claimed that the dogs in the neighborhood have since stated howling late at night. The second eyewitness to have seen a Bigfoot creature was Mr. Oliveri's neighbor, Miss Rosa Medina, who used to live next door to Mr. Oliveri. Miss Medina claimed that she spotted a smaller animal which ran on two feet. Miss Medina said she was awakened by her dog barking. When she went to the window, she saw an animal sitting on her back step. She said she was too frightened of the animal to go out, so she tapped on the window. To her surprise, she said, The animal jumped on two feet and ran off. She described the beast as about three feet tall with brown fur. In addition to the sightings, Oliveri's sister, Yolanda, reported that the particularly devoured body of cat was found in the backyard last week. She said the jaw of the cat was found in their backyard had been twisted grotesquely. 
Mr. Oliveri said he thinks the creature may be a mother and its offsprings living in the Henley Wood area along Quintana Road. Mr. Oliveri said he has searched the area and has found some unusual looking footprints or tracks, but has been unable to sight the animal again. Members of the Oliveri family showed some of the tracks to a reporter and a photographer. Silver prints appear to be the size and shape of human footprints. Mr. Oliveri said he has contacted state wildlife officials about the creature and was told that someone would examine the prints. Meanwhile, a number of residents are afraid to go outside their homes at night. One stated, I'm not going to come out here alone with those Bigfoot creatures roaming around these areas, especially if what they've done to the wildlife here. The community of Kelly Air Force Base was indeed terrorized by the creatures and soon put out a curfew in hopes of keeping people safe. The creatures were last reported being in late August of 1976, before all signs stopped in early of September of 1976. In 2005, when the Institute of Texas Culture heard the story, they sent some of their researchers to investigate this Bigfoot case in hopes of documenting the signing and presented at their new Bigfoot exhibit for the year 2006. Sadly, they could not find any witnesses from that event and decided that they would not present the case in their Bigfoot exhibit due to a few amount of evidence from that historical event. As previously mentioned in both the Converse Werewolf and Thunderbird episodes, I met a couple of veterans who had paranormal experiences while being stationed at San Antonio, Texas. One witness had a Dogman encounter, while the other one had a Thunderbird encounter. This last witness had an encounter with one of Kelly's Bigfoots. Due to the nature of his job that he was still working in, he asked me to keep his identity anonymous as well. However, just like the other veterans, he wanted his account to be known to the public and hopes to inform the public of what had happened during the Bigfoot event near Kelly Air Force Base in 1976. The witness claimed that while driving to Kelly Air Force Base in the morning, he saw a seven-foot-tall hairy creature crossing through the road and into the woods. He could not believe what he was seeing. The creature was unlike anything he had ever seen. It was seven feet tall, was covered in hair, and looked like a female. When the eyewitness made it to Kelly Air Force Base, he asked the security guards at the gate if there was any ape on the loose, to which they responded, no. However, they claimed that the U.S. Air Force Security Forces tried to capture a seven-foot-tall hairy creature that was trying to break through one of the metal fences near Kelly Air Force Base runways. U.S. Air Force Security Forces tried to capture the creature, but it escaped into the woods before any of them could grab it. No one knew what they saw that day, and many of the military witnesses were informed to keep their encounter a secret and not notify the press of what just happened. A few days later, the eyewitness talked with his friend who worked as an intel officer. The eyewitness claims that while talking with his friend, he asked him if he knew anything about a giant ape on the loose in Kelly Air Force Base. To his shock, his friend revealed to him that what he saw was a genuine Bigfoot and not an ape. His friend explained to him that the United States military has received many reports of Bigfoots near military bases across the U.S. He also revealed that Kelly community was petrified of going outside because the creature had been reported to have been hostile. The eyewitness wanted to know what the military was going to do with this situation. His friend replied was shocking, to say the least. His friend told him that the United States military was going to leave the creatures alone. The eyewitness asked his friend why the U.S. military 
was going to leave these creatures alone if the reports of them being hostile are true. His friend responded that since the 1960s up until 1976, the United States military has been keeping track of growing reports of humanoid cryptids that have been reported across San Antonio. His friend mentioned about the donkey lady attacks of the 1960s to the 1970s, reports of wolfmen still roaming converse from the late 1960s and early 1970s, and recently the Thunderbirds attacks in the south side of San Antonio at Brooks Air Force Base in 1976. The eyewitness claimed that his friend told him, how do you think the public would react if they learned that all these creatures not only existed, but also were able to penetrate military bases and have been known to be violently attacking humans? The eyewitness responded that probably with all those reports smashed together, the San Antonio public would panic and everything would go to chaos. To which his friend replied, you are correct. That is why the United States government are keeping these reports isolated and unknown to the public. The eyewitness then asked his friend, why is there a rise of reports from the 1960s to 1976? His friend answered was that due to San Antonio's population growth and what the United States military was doing behind the scenes, it's very possible that these factors are the cause of the rise in reports of encounters with these mysterious cryptids. The eyewitness friend even claimed that these creatures have been here in San Antonio since Native Americans established these lands as their home. With the rise of deforestation and the secret government research that the U.S. government was doing in San Antonio may in fact be correlated with the rise of these encounters. The best method that the U.S. government found was that by leaving these creatures alone, the encounters would decrease and disappear from public thought. After speaking with his friend, the eyewitness agreed that he would keep his encounter and what he had learned from him a secret. His friend thanked him, and the eyewitness kept this information a secret for nearly 45 years. I asked the eyewitness why he decided to reveal this information now in the year 2020. His response was that his intel friend had recently passed away, and since the majority of San Antonians are unaware of what had transpired at Kelly in 1976, he believed that the surviving witness of the 1976 Bigfoot encounters at Kelly might find some closure with his account. He also believed that this part of San Antonio history should be known since a majority of San Antonio history is not being taught this very day. In 2021, many San Antonians are unaware of what has transpired at Kelly Air Force Base in 1976. If the reports from the eyewitnesses are indeed true, then it's very likely that San Antonio was home to a variety of cryptids. It is also possible that Kelly's Bigfoots were indeed real. Kelly's Bigfoots is probably one of the most shocking historical events to have happened at Kelly Air Force Base and was successfully hidden from the public. Many of the eyewitnesses have either moved out of San Antonio or have passed away. Hopefully, this video will shed some light or even some closure to the surviving witnesses of that historical event. As to where these creatures are now, we may truly never know, and maybe it might be best to leave these Bigfoots in peace.
can trace the origins of when these encounters started, we must look back at the history of Native American tribes that lived in San Antonio, Texas. Before the Spanish discovered San Antonio, Texas, many Native American tribes that lived in this area told many legends about giant creatures that guarded the skies. Some of these tribes called these creatures the Thunderbirds, a 10-foot-tall bird with a wingspan that was more than 10 feet. Some of these Native American folklore claim that the Thunderbird could create powerful winds, dangerous storms, and could shoot lightning out of their eyes. After the Spanish colonized San Antonio, many of the Spanish colonists believed that the Thunderbird legends were just myth, since they did not see the creature. However, that would soon change when in 1975, people began reporting seeing the supposed creature. The most well-known first documented account in 1975 was when two police officers encountered the creature in Harlingen, Texas. By the end of 1975, early in the morning, two police officers, known as Arturo Patilio and Homero Galvin, were on patrol in Harlingen, Texas, near the border of Mexico, when all of a sudden, a giant bird almost hit the roof of their patrol car. They immediately stopped and looked out their window. They described the creature to be a huge bird with a wingspan of 10 feet long. They reported the incident to their superiors in hopes of learning the entire police force of what they saw. However, the case was discredited as a misidentification of a large pelican. Some within Harlingen Police Department hoped that this would be the end of the story. But they would soon learn that this was only just the beginning. On January 1st, 1976, two teenage girls named Tracy Lawson and Jackie Davis stated they observed a scary five-foot-tall bird leering at them in the yard as they played. Their parents discovered some enormous three-toed tracks the next day that were featured on local news broadcast. Hysteria soon erupted. On January 7, 1976, a Brownsville man named Alferco Guajardo heard something slam into his trailer home, and when he went out to confront the culprit, he claimed that he stood face-to-face with a bird, but not a bird like something from another planet. One week later, at Raymondville, a resident named Armando Grimaldo experienced the most terrifying encounter to date. When he was sitting outside smoking a cigarette one evening, suddenly he heard some sound of great flapping wings and was attacked from above by a beast that scratched at him, ripping his clothes. He was later transported to Williamson County Hospital in a state of shock. Other notable reports included that of two sisters who spotted Big Bird at a watering hole in Brownsville on the 18th, as well as two soldiers who had a signing on a ranch near Pody the same day. At one point, the fervor was so great that everyone from local radio station owners to oil tycoons were offering a substantial reward for the capture of the avian monster. While this was going on, just over 100 miles away, the city of San Antonio began hearing stories of what was going on in South Texas. Many San Antonio zoologists of that era believed that these stories they were reading were just sensational reports of misidentifications of Texas wildlife birds. One zoologist even claimed that the only way he would take the report seriously would be if the big bird would visit San Antonio. Many found his claim to be hilarious, but soon that joke would become a reality the next month. In February of 1976, three Southside San Antonio school teachers reported that they were buzzed by two giant black birds while driving in separate vehicles. 
the three identified a pair of what look to be giant birds with bony structures and wingspans stretching from 15 to 20 feet, a look reminiscent to one teacher of a pterodon, an extinct type of flying reptile that lived 160 million years ago. News coverage from the San Antonio Evening News documented the sighting. A reporter reached out to then-director of San Antonio Sioux, Luis de Zapato, to inquire about the claims that a pterodon was flying its wings in the Lone Star State. As he stated, there's nothing in today's Texas that would be that. I know of nothing that looks like that, but I sure would like two of them for the Sioux, stated the Sioux director. San Antonio Southside officials had directed the educational professionals not to discuss the event with the media during school hours for fear of alarming students. One teacher told the reporter that they are not designated to discuss non-school matters over the telephone while on the clock. From February to December of 1976, San Antonio, Texas would experience a massive flap of encounters with the Thunderbird, ranging from seeing the creature flying in the air to some accounts of the creature attacking the citizens. As previously mentioned in the last episode, I had the chance to talk with a couple of veterans that worked in Brooks Air Force Base. One of the veterans told me the story about having an encounter with the Converse Werewolf. The other veteran, however, had a different account with a different creature, and that creature was the San Antonio Thunderbird of 1976. From what the veteran had informed me, the encounter took place during the Big Bird Flap of 1976. It happened in May of 1976, just a few months after those teachers reported their encounter to the San Antonio newspaper. The sign happened in the middle of the night while he was in the parking lot. He was walking towards his truck, but stopped in his tracks when he heard the loudest screech in his entire life. He looked up and saw what looked like a giant pterodon coming right at him from the night sky. He immediately jumped into his truck and slammed the door. He claimed the creature buzzed his truck and flew up in the sky. He was shocked at what just happened and saw that the creature was heading towards Brooks Air Force Base. He decided that he was going to follow the creature and did his best to track it. Once he reached Brooks Air Force Base, he claimed that the guards at the gate were awestruck but also terrified at what they were seeing. He immediately asked them, are you seeing what I'm seeing? To which the guards replied, a giant bird flying around the base. Both the guards and him watched the creature fly around the base for a couple of minutes before it disappeared into the horizon. I asked him if he reported the incident, to which the witness replied, no. I was afraid that if I reported what I saw that night, I could not only lose my job, but also be considered a looney tune and be sent to the mental hospital. I soon asked him if the guards reported their sightings to their superiors, to which the witness responded, no. He claimed that both the guards and him will keep the event a secret for fear of losing their jobs, and also many with whom worked in Brooks Air Force Base believed the science to be misidentification of Texas wildlife birds. They were also concerned of just saying that they were not doing their job and could possibly be demoted as well. The final nail in the coffin for now reporting this event to their superiors was that the citizens of San Antonio were paranoid at what was happening. The witness claimed that many people in the south side of San Antonio did not allow their kids to play alone outside for fear the giant birds would attack them and carry their children off into the sky. Some adults would sit outside their house with shotguns in hopes of protecting their neighborhood from these giant birds. Even groups of bird watchers were searching high and low to find these giant birds. 
the last thing the Air Force witnesses wanted was for citizens of Santine to learn that Giant Bird was able to penetrate a restricted airspace and the Air Force could not do anything about it. Nearly 45 years later, in the year 2020, the witness decided that his story should be known to the public since he is now retired and would not be negatively affected by revealing his story. By 1977, the last known reports of the Thunderbird sightings were in Lake Shelbyville, Illinois. Chief A.J. Hufer, who back in his young days during the 1970s worked with local news stations that was trying to capture photograph evidence of these Thunderbirds that were being reported in Illinois. Using his knowledge of the lands, he went into his canoe to see if he could find these creatures at some of the sighting locations in Lake Shelbyville. One day, he was able to finally see the creature and immediately began filming what he saw. Month of July, 1977, many reports of giant living thunderbirds were pouring into newspaper offices and TV stations across central Illinois. I, Chief A.J., of the Central Tribal Native American Council was called upon by CBS television to try to film a living Thunderbird. I'd been trained by the United States Marine Corps to be a combat photographer. CBS had called on me many times in the past to film major fires. I had produced good films for CBS, delivering to them network quality results. I studied a map of Central Illinois where the Thunderbird sightings had been happening and decided to cruise by canoe the remote shoreline of Lake Shelbyville. I had my 16-millimeter news camera loaded with 100 feet of professional ectochrome film. You are now seeing the original footage of living, flying Thunderbirds straight out of Native American legends. This footage has been studied by several universities since July 1977, and the following television show is one of the interesting results. Let it fly. By 1979, San Antonio saw no more of the Thunderbirds, leaving many witnesses to wonder what they had witnessed. While San Antonio's academic community concluded that the Thunderbird signs were just misidentification of Texas wildlife birds, Many of the witnesses disagreed with that conclusion. Although it's been 45 years since the big bird flap of 1976, some San Antonians are still reporting signs of giant birds in San Antonio's sky to this very day. One of San Antonio's best cryptozoologists in the field for researching winged cryptids is cryptozoologist Ken Gerhard. Ken Gerhard has been researching the big bird flap of 1976 for the past couple of decades. From reading some of his books and watching some of his interviews, Mr. Gerhard has concluded that many of the witnesses that saw this creature did not misidentify Texas wildlife birds, but probably either saw a surviving pterodon or a completely new bird species that scientists have yet to uncover. All in all, the big bird flap of 1976 is truly indeed a hidden history of San Antonio, Texas. In today's general public of San Antonio, many citizens are unaware of this event. One can only hope that the mystery behind this event will one day be solved. But until then, this event will stay a mystery for quite some time. Imagine driving in the dead of night 
on a road that is not lit well. Upon this road, you encounter a set of railroad tracks that give you an uncomfortable feeling, as if something bad happened here a long time ago. You can't put your finger on it, but you get the urge to cross the railroad as soon as possible. Suddenly, your car stops working as you try to go through the railroad tracks. You try starting your vehicle, but for some unknown reason, it won't start on. That's when you start to hear childish giggling, even though you are alone inside your vehicle. You start to realize that your car is moving on its own. You turn around to see if someone is pushing you. When you realize no one's behind you, as your vehicle crosses this mysterious railroad, it begins to work again. You immediately begin to leave this creepy place and turn to the closest gas station. Once you have arrived at the gas station, you examine your vehicle and discover handprints on the back of your vehicle. This is one of the many cases of the mysterious place known as San Antonio's infamous ghost tracks, located at 2902 Shane Road, San Antonio, Texas. It's one of the many unknown histories of San Antonio, Texas, that few San Antonians know about until now. I am your host, Streetlight Historian, and today I will explore the tragic story of the infamous ghost tracks of San Antonio, Texas. many versions about the ghost tracks, the one that stands out the most is the story about a nun driving a school bus. The website Ghost City Tours does an excellent job of describing this tragic legend on its website. Between the 1930s and 1940s, on a dark night, a nun was driving a school bus filled with children to their homes after a field trip. They were heading down on Shane Road, but when approaching the railroad crossing, the bus abruptly stalled out on the tracks. Most of the students were sleeping, so she was quietly attempting to start the engines back up. It was then a train emerged, seemingly out of nowhere, as the headlamp was burnt out. It offered no warning of its impending arrival. It was too late to evacuate the children, as the train was moving too fast. The nun 
desperately and frantically turned the key, making one last attempt to restart the bus, just as the train smashed through the bus, cutting it in half. The nun was thrown through the windshield, but miraculously survived. The young children were not as fortunate. They were all killed instantly. A few weeks later, the nun, Gilren, and heartbroken, returned to the site of the accident. She was unable to continue on living in guilt. Thus, she decided to end her life. She parked her car on the tracks and sat there, waiting for the next train to come along. Later, when a train came into sight, speeding down towards her, in the same way as the tragic night, the nun began to hear small, familiar voices. Then, her car began to move forward, as if it was being pushed from behind. The nun's car was rolled to safety. Just as the train roared by, in disbelief, the nun got out of her car and began looking around, expecting to find a good Samaritan. She saw not a single soul. She looked back at her car and noticed children-sized handprints on the back of her trunk. It was then she realized that the ghost of her students had saved her life. The nun was then blessed with a newfound purpose in life, and she opened a school for orphans. She taught there till the day she died. While this is the end of the ghost track legend, between the 1960s to the present, there have been many reports of unexplained supernatural encounters at the infamous ghost tracks. People report hearing children laughing, objects moving, sounds of incoming trains that don't appear, and finally, ghostly apparitions at the ghost tracks itself. The truth has been debated in San Antonio with both residents and law enforcement officials wary of the legend. There have been countless reports of cars appearing to move on their own, with mysterious childlike prints showing up on vehicles afterwards. Some have also allegedly heard the voices and laughter of children while at the railroad tracks, especially at night. However, despite these stories, there are no records of any accidents ever occurring on the railroad tracks in San Antonio. Some believe the legend was inspired by another fatal accident that happened on December 1st, 1938, far away in Salt Lake City, Utah. The city was dealing with blizzard conditions and a school bus carrying over 20 students, aging from 12 to 18, was attempting to bring the kids home safe when the bus stalled out on the railroad tracks just as a 50-car freight train came hurling their way. The aftermath was grisly, with every soul on the bus left dead. Is it possible that the news coverage of the Salt Lake City crash became blurred over time with San Antonio folklore, with later generations adopting the story as their own? If that is the case, why aren't there other similar stories throughout America? And why are there so many first-hand accounts at the railroad tracks in San Antonio? The mystery behind the ghost tracks may never truly be uncovered and will possibly live on as a mystery for many future generations to come. On October 19, 2018, it was announced to the public that the infamous ghost tracks would be demolished and be replaced with new, up-to-date railroad tracks and rail safety systems. While the Union Pacific Company was excited about updating this area of San Antonio, many citizens were saddened by the news that the infamous ghost track, which had become 
a local landmark for many generations of San Antonians, would be destroyed. This made the 2010s generation of San Antonians the last generation to experience the infamous ghost tracks. While the ghost tracks are indeed gone, both this legends and historical impacts will not be forgotten. By the citizens of San Antonio, who to this day swear they experienced something supernatural happened there. Like any folklore, its legends live on through its people, and the lessons it teaches us still impact us to this very day. on your graveyard shift and have to make a drive through the south side of San Antonio, Texas. You decide to take a break on the next exit and find a good parking spot. Once you have found it, you realize that you are near a small graveyard. As you are looking through your stuff, your vehicle begins to act weird. You notice that your lights are flickering and immediately shut them off. To make matters worse, your vehicle immediately dies. And to add more creep factors, your windows begin to roll down on their own. You look around, trying to figure out what is going on, and you suddenly hear voices. The only problem is that you see no one creating these voices. You look back at the small graveyard, and you nearly have a heart attack, standing to a sign that says, No witchcraft, a mysterious but haunting figure appears floating above the ground. The figure is translucent, but you can clearly see the figure's face. It's a woman with long black hair, black eyes, and is wearing what appears to be a white gown that seems to be made in the 19th century. You can tell that she does not appear to be happy and slowly floating towards your location. You immediately try everything to get your vehicle to start, but to no prevail. The ghostly woman finally reaches your location as she is just a few feet from your face. You now have a better look of her. She seems to be seven feet tall and appears to be an Asian woman. She slowly looks directly into your eyes and examines you almost as if she is judging what she will do to you. All you can do is hope and pray that this ghostly woman will let you live and leave you be. In a soft but stern voice, the woman tells you to leave her resting place or you will suffer the consequences for disturbing this area. After hearing that, your fecal comes back to life and the ghostly woman disappears right in front of you. Immediately, you close your windows and drive out there as fast as you can. This account is just one of the many eyewitness testimonies I have heard when exploring the forgotten history of the Chinese graveyard in San Antonio, Texas. On this episode, I will cover the mysterious history behind the Chinese graveyard that many have claimed to be haunted. I am your host, Streetlight Historian, and this is The Hidden Histories of San Antonio, Texas.
Located on the south side of San Antonio, Texas, on South Sarsamora Street and Loop 410, Lona China Cemetery is a small private family cemetery that is considered haunted by many of the locals. Located near Texas A&M University at San Antonio, Texas, this small cemetery has attracted unusual people from around the city of San Antonio, Texas. Ghost City Tours does an excellent job of exploring the mystery behind this small cemetery, which I will leave a link below the video if you are interested in reading their findings on this mysterious grave. The Chinese graveyard, also known as the Luma China Cemetery and the Guzman Burial Ground, is a small graveyard owned by a family named the Guzman. In the year 2009, one of the family members named Joey Guzman talked with San Antonio News Channel's CANS 5 News about the history and legend of the haunted Chinese graveyard on one of their specials titled Horror Haunted in San Antonio Unearthed Ghostly Tales. As the legend goes, told by Joey Guzman, the graveyard began over a hundred years ago, and as for the meaning behind the Chinese graveyard's name, Guzman stated, supposedly, a great-uncle of his was seen a Chinese woman, and they were in love. And according to Guzman, when the family found out about the relationship, his great-grandfather forbidden him from seeing his true love. Guzman, the caretaker of the property, said that the cemetery was where his great-uncle and his love would meet in secret. Apparently, one night his great-uncle was riding his horse to meet his secret love when he and the horse were killed by lightning. Afterward, he was buried in the family graveyard. It was said that the woman, broken-hearted, later went to his graveyard and committed suicide. The family so guilt that they drove the pair to act in secrecy, ultimately dooming them to death, that they decided to bury the woman alongside her love. Since that day, Guzman said there is a curse on the graveyard and that those who continue to see the ghost of the woman will be struck by lightning just as the love of her life was. In The Cemetery Travelers, written by Ed Snyder, did his own investigation on this legend in Haunted Texas Graveyard, which I will put a link at the bottom of the video. From Ed Snyder's investigations, the ghost of the woman is said to sometimes appear as a white mist, while others have claimed to see a full-formed, towering seven-foot-tall apparition of an Asian woman. Red Rushing, folklorist and former employee of the Institute of Texas Cultures, said of the hauntings that you're supposed to drive to the cemetery, park at the gate, facing the big white cross, roll down your windows so that you are exposed to the air, turn your lights off, turn your car off, wait, and then flicker your lights five times. It is then that the seven-foot-tall female spirit will appear. Most people tear out of pretty quickly thereafter, added Red Rushing. But if you stay, the ghostly woman may walk over to your car, and once there, reach through your roll-down window to physically grab your arm. An unnamed source claims to have gone to the graveyard to put the urban legend to the test. A while back, the source and a few friends had parked just in front of the cemetery, and, as expected of them, flashed their lights five times. Then it happened. A tall, ghostly image appeared, 
turned towards them and began to glare. After that, they didn't even bother waiting to see if the ghosts would move in their direction and grab them. They had enough of their fill of excitement and decided to get out of there as soon as possible. One of the more recent ghostly accounts happened in June of 2015. It was past midnight when a young couple drove up to the gate of the graveyard. They sat in the car for a moment before readying themselves to flash the car lights. After the fifth flash, they suddenly saw the much talked about white mist and emanating from thin air. The young couple froze, stunned by what they were witnessing. Everything grew eerily quiet as the mist began to form into a large apparition. The tall spirit began to move towards the couple's vehicle, but then stopped. Within seconds of halting, the spirit vanished almost as quickly as it first appeared. The couple, still shocked by the sight, remained there for over half an hour before finally leaving. Some visitors have reportedly experienced cold spots while at the cemetery during a hot summer night. Also, light orbs have appeared on several occasions, and the most creepiest of them all is the constant sense that you're being followed. Because of its history, the Chinese graveyard has attracted unwanted attention, particularly with witches and occultists. It has gone so bad that the Guzman family have put up a sign that says "No Witchcraft Allowed." Some historians and folklorists have pointed out that the mysterious Asian ghost lady seems very familiar to the famous Japanese urban legend of Hashikaku-sama, a seven to eight feet tall woman that is a yoki. Meaning ghost in Japanese, but other than that, it is very possible that this graveyard could indeed be haunted, due to the variety of eyewitness accounts that it can be traced back to the earliest 20th century. In the end, the Chinese graveyard should be loved in peace and should be treated with respect, due to the tragic history behind it, as well as to help the Guzman family, who are doing their best to preserve their family history. Glass, welcome to Inside Edition. Bill O'Reilly is on assignment. Do you believe in werewolves? If you ask that question in a small town in Wisconsin, don't be surprised if the answer is yes. Something strange is going on up there, and we'll tell you about it a little later on. But first. We've been investigating dangers at shopping malls across the country. It turns out that random acts of violence are becoming more common at malls. Johnson Woods, is it a werewolf? Hey, Glow! Hey, Bang! That thing, that was no dog. That was too big to be a dog. That thing was bigger than me. There is something going on in the woods of Wisconsin. It isn't Bigfoot, but it is a mysterious beast, and enough people have seen it to know it exists.、But、what is it? We asked Joe Lloyd to find out. I told my mom I thought I saw a werewolf, and my mom believed me. I was walking along a good, probably seven to ten seconds before. It had turned its head. That thing, that was no dog. That was too big to be a dog. That thing was bigger than me. That thing was stalking cornfields, jumping on cars, and feasting on roadkill. For two years, people in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, whispered about a king-sized creature who roamed Bray Road. 
It had really big claws. It was holding its roadkill like it had elbows. And it was kneeling on two knees, like a human being might do. Eerie stories like that prompted Linda Godfrey, a reporter and cartoonist, to investigate. It was all just too bizarre not to be for real. When you live in a small town and you say you've seen something that looks like a dog man or a wolf man, you know, you're going to get some ridicule, and they did. So they had no reason to say this. Despite the ridicule, beast believers came forward in Godfrey's Beast of Bray Road article, like Doris Gibson, who'd seen it on Halloween night 1991. Driving down Bray Road, she had gotten out of her car when she thought she had hit an animal. It was foggy out, and I was a little bit afraid. And this big thing come just, like, trucking, you know? Just trucking down the road at me, man. I looked at it, and I'm like, ah! And I ran, I got back in the car. You know, and before I peeled off, that thing scratched the back of the car. Tom Brichta's car was also scratched by the creature from Bray Road. My adrenaline started pumping. Um, I was scared. But this is a creature that likes to cross county lines. Tom saw it twice on Route 106. We were having a good time and stuff. We were singing to the oldies and uh, jamming out and stuff. And all of a sudden, I, I noticed this on the side of the road. He was big, and I, he looked intimidating. I, I, I was scared of his appearance. Back on Bray Road, Lori Andreezy remembers her close encounter with the creature in 1990. I saw it kneeling on the side of the road, and it was eating something. And I came up from behind it. And I slowed down because I thought it was a person at first. So I came up from behind it, and I realized it wasn't a person when I saw its pointy ears. From those descriptions, Linda drew up this composite picture of the beast. All agreed it was very big, with pointy ears and broad-chested with a shaggy coat, streaked with silver, gray, or black. It had brought its right hand up, stopped, looked over by the car, real nonchalant and made eye contact with both Scott and I and gave like this sneer, like it was challenging us. Like, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, I'm here, you're there. I'm bigger than you are. You can't do anything about it. But with all the sightings, no one knew if it was man, beast, or even a combination of the two. One person simply called it God's mistake. I would assume that what they saw was some sort of an animal, probably dog-like in nature, either a, a, a loose dog or a coyote. I just said, it's a big animal, and it's upset. It's really upset. If werewolves do exist, this is probably a werewolf. Hey, what are you doing? Once the W word was spoken, werewolf mania broke out in Elkhorn. T-shirts were gobbled up, and personal capture permits were issued courtesy of hairy face. Even the local bakery made Beast of Bray Road cookies, touting them as werewolf cookies that will make you howl. Letters came pouring in. One in particular sent chills down Linda's spine. He said it was too large to be a wolf. It had a terribly unkempt look to its fur. Wild, not normal. Elaine Bushman was describing what her husband Robert had witnessed in 1991. The Bushmans live in St. Nazian and were just passing through town when Robert spied the creature. They knew nothing of the beastly tales that haunted Elkhorn. I've never seen anything that uh, would be dirty enough and for some reason or other scary enough to make you 
feel the hair lift up on your arms, you know? So, is it a dog, coyote, or werewolf? Believe what you will, but just remember, it's here, just waiting. While no formal reports were made to the Elkhorn police, the department did get some teasing from other police departments in the state, giving them a hard time about being the home of the werewolf. Coming up as Inside Edition continues, we'll go behind the scenes on the Jackie Thomas Show. And next, it has happened again, a controversy over a young model and her Calvins. During the 1990s, reports of creatures that look like werewolves were beginning to rise across the United States. One of the most famous cases was the piece of Barry Road that was investigated by Linda Godfrey. Fast forward 30 years in the year 2021, many Americans have heard the famous Wisconsin werewolf legend. While many Americans are aware of the Wisconsin werewolf legend, many are unaware of a werewolf legend in Texas. In this episode, I will explore one of San Antonio's oldest legends, the Converse Werewolf. I am your host, Streetlight Historian, and this is The Hidden Histories of San Antonio, Texas. Occasionally, a Lincolnthrope is a human with the ability to shapeshift into a wolf, either purposely or after being placed under a curse or affliction with a transformation occurring on the night of a full moon. Many werewolf legends can be found across the world, from Asia to Europe, from the Middle East to Africa, from South America to North America. Before European colonization of North America, Many Native American tribes would tell stories of shapeshifters that would turn into wolves called skinwalkers. Other tribes would talk about bipedal wolves that were seen as protectors or destroyers of the lands they lived on. During American colonization period from 1492 to 1776, many of the European folklore was transported into North America and new tales of werewolves started to grow. One of the most famous folklore tales of werewolves came from the German immigrants who told stories of cursed people who would become shapeshifters during a full moon. Many of these folklore stories will inspire the many werewolf movies that have been produced since the early 20th century. 
While in today's American society promotes the idea that werewolves are just myth, some Americans believe that these creatures still exist. Many point to the Beast of Bray Road case that Miss Linda Godfrey investigated back in the 1990s. Her conclusion shocked many Americans when she revealed that due to the high amount of eyewitness accounts, tracks that she examined, and examining Elkhorn, Wisconsin's police department's official werewolf archive files, that the creature many people were seeing was indeed real. She even went further to state that the creature many people were seeing might possibly be a cryptid and should be given a new name since this creature has been both seen at night or day. This made the Beast of Bray Road become a famous modern American werewolf legend. While the Wisconsin werewolf legend has been known to many, one werewolf legend in San Antonio, Texas is only known by a few within the Converse community. While there are variations of the Converse werewolf legend, the one I will choose comes from author Michael Mays. The legend begins around the mid to late 1800s, when Converse was just a small farming community. Inside this farming community, a rancher moved onto a plot of land near what is now known as Converse. The man was a rugged sword who had grown up in true pioneer fashion. Some versions of the tale suggest he was a military combat veteran who moved to the area to put the horrors of the Civil War behind him. This man had a son who was something of a disappointment to him. The lad was frail and bookish and preferred studying to wrangling and hunting. This frustrated the old rancher to no end and he decided to make a man out of the boy. The rancher decided to send the boy out hunting. He hoped that the boy would take a liking to the sport, and that after making his first kill, would prefer the more manly activity over studying and reading. The old man put a long rifle in the boy's hands and instructed him to go hunt and shoot a deer. The family needed meat, he directed the boy to hunt a heavily wooded area along the creek called Skull Crossing. The boy was reluctant at first and resisted, but one way or another, he was finally coerced into going. The old rancher watched with high hopes as his son trekked away from the homestead towards the woods. The old man would soon be disappointed, however, as his son returned a few hours later empty-handed. When chastised for returning without any game, the boy told his father that he left the area out of fear as he had spotted and been stalked by a monster resembling a werewolf. The father merely dismissed this wild story and, and threatened his son into returning to the area to finish his hunt or else face his wrath. The boy did not want to go, but his father left him no choice. Trembling and fearful, the boy trugged back out to the anonymously named area of Skull Crossing. Little did the old rancher know it would be the last time he would see his son alive. Hours passed and darkness began to fall. The old man, as the story goes, began to worry and had second thoughts about sending his inexperienced son into the woods alone. While he hoped the reason the boy had not returned was that he had yet to make a kill, he began to have a sinking feeling deep within his guts that something was wrong. Deciding not to wait any longer, the rancher rounded up some of his neighbors and they made their way towards the wood area near Skull Crossing in hopes of finding his boy. 
What they found upon arriving there is the stuff of nightmares. The search party happened upon a monstrous, hairiest creature hunched over the body of the rancher's son. The beast was in fact acting ravishly, devouring the boy when discovered. His man got off a few shots at the monster, but it bounded away at lightning speeds. The werewolf, as it was dubbed, was described as standing between eight to nine feet tall and covered in dark hair or fur. Members of the search party described it as being some kind of unholy combination between wolf and man. The old rancher was understandably devastated by the death of his boy. He blamed himself for not believing his son's story and believed he sent him to his doom by forcing him to return to the Skull Crossing to complete his hunt. Some versions of the tale say that the rancher died shortly thereafter. Some versions say he became reclusive, refused to eat, and wasted away. Others say that he committed suicide by setting fire to his own home and burned to death. Either way, the legend ends in tragedy and became a warning to the community on Converse to beware of the werewolf that lived in the woods of Skull Crossing near Converse. Upon further research into this fascinating legend, I stumbled across something much bigger than what I had initially expected. The Converse werewolf legend was just one of the many hill country werewolf legends that ranged from the mid-1800s to early 1920s. A couple of decades later, after the Converse werewolf encounter, in the early 1900s, stories of large humanoid dogs or wolves began to surface within the townfolk of Bergram and the surrounding communities. Soon after, a small group of railroad workers simply disappeared without a trace. Many of the townsfolks of Bergram believed that these mysterious creatures played a role in their disappearance. In Kimball County, just 120 or so miles from Bergram, the story of a tombstone carved N.Q. Patterson, whose rocks carving of one particular large image, a face with broad nose, glitzing eyes, and snarling mouth with long, fang-like teeth, made people take notice. What did the face represent? Some have said the face reminds them of a wild bear. Some believed, for years, the carving was made by Indians, but according to local accounts, the face was indeed carved by Mr. Patterson himself. Who or what is represented is still anyone's guess. In some of the Texas folklore, some say there is a legend around parts of the hill country that tells of an old Indian man who would change his shape in order to avoid capture by cavalrymen stationed in the area. Legend has it that when cornered, the old man would assume the shape of a wolf and attack his pursuers, often resulting in death or serious injury. But by the 1920s, all stories of wolfmen in central Texas area had all but disappeared. A final signing in the late 50s, 300 miles from Birdram, is the last we see of this type of signing. On a July 9th in 1958, Miss Delbert Gregg was getting ready for bed in her Gregton, Texas home when she glanced out the window. Thunderstorms were on the way when a sun flash of lightning illuminated the countryside. She saw a horrifying sight outside her open window. It was a huge, shaggy, wolf-like creature that was clawing at the screen and glaring at her with baleful, glowing, slitted eyes. Back in the year 2020, when I was doing some historical research on the School of Aerospace Medicine, also known as SAM, 
at Brooks Air Force Base. I had an opportunity to meet a couple of veterans who worked at Brooks Air Force Base during the time that Sam was stationed there. Many of these veterans worked as enlisted personnel and came from different backgrounds. As I was writing their accounts, some of them wanted to talk to me personally about some interesting experiences they had while being stationed at Brooks Air Force Base. I agreed to their request and promised them I would not mention their names and keep them anonymous. One of the veterans told me his account of what happened to him while he was taking a small vacation at East Lake, now known as Browning Lake Park, in the 1980s. While camping at this park, he had an encounter that he will never forget. One day, while preparing a barbecue grill at his campsite, he heard the loudest wolf howl he had ever heard in his entire life. The howling was so powerful, he claimed that his entire body was vibrating. He looked at where the howling was coming from and saw something standing in the clearing. A couple hundred feet from where he stood was an eight-foot-tall bipedal wolf with glowing eyes looking directly at him. The veteran froze in fear at what he was seeing. Suddenly, this creature began walking towards him. Due to his fear, he stood completely still, trying to figure out an escape plan. The creature stopped in his tracks when it was just three feet from the veteran. Since the creature was close, he was able to see better detail of what the creature looked like. This creature was jet black, had pointy ears, had a head of a wolf, was definitely bipedal, had arms, legs, and claws on its hands, and had a black, bushy tail. He also could tell that it was a male and was very muscular. When he looked at the creature's eyes, the veteran claimed that the glowing eyes' colors were amber. He also claimed that by looking at the eyes, he could sense this creature was not only sentient, but also humanly intelligent. It soon came into his mind that this creature that looked like a werewolf was trying to decide what to do with him. The creature came close to his face and began to sniff at him. After smelling him, the creature stood back and humanly nodded at him. The veteran claimed that after nodding at him, he could have sworn that the creature smiled at him in a cheerful mood. Before the veteran could ask anything to this mysterious creature, he heard another howl that sounded feminine. The creature turned around and looked at the clearing where the howling was coming from. The veteran claimed that he saw a female-like creature that was at the clearing calling the male. The male creature turned around, gave one last smile to the veteran, and began to run back to the clearing. Once the male creature was with the female creature, they both ran into the woods, never to be seen again by the eyewitness. For about a couple of minutes, the veteran just kept staring at the woods, trying to comprehend what had just happened. After standing there for what felt like 30 minutes, the veteran backed up to his camping equipment and headed back to Brooks Air Force Base. The veteran decided to keep his encounter a secret for fear of being ridiculed, but also fear for losing his job in the United States military. The eyewitness told me that in his personal opinion, the reason why the creature did not attack him and basically nod at him with a smile was due to his respect for both nature and the creatures that lived on that land. He had kept his secret for 40 years after having that encounter back in the 1980s. It wouldn't be until around the 2020s that he decided to come forward with his account. After hearing this veteran's story, I decided to dig a little bit deeper into figuring out what people were reporting for the past 150 years here in Texas. 
What I found was that the Converse werewolf and other reported sightings in Texas are not shape-shifting creatures, but something else completely different. The cryptozoological community has a name for this creature, and they call it Dogman. The theory is that there is a bipedal humanoid wolf-like creature that has been on this planet since the dawn of human civilization. The cryptozoological community also theorizes that these dogmen or wolfmen may have inspired their werewolf folklore throughout history. Is it possible that these creatures exist? After examining my own investigations, historical research, and interviewing eyewitnesses, I am open to the idea that these dogmen are real. Making the Converse werewolf legend truly a hidden history of San Antonio, Texas. My one final advice I have for you, the viewers of this episode, is that if these creatures are indeed real, it is best to respect these creatures and leave them in peace, for they are truly powerful cryptids that are both sentient and have human intelligence, like ourselves. Lays an old bridge that goes over Medina River. In the Apple White Trailhead Park, lays an old bridge that goes over Medina River. Just located southwest of the Toyota plant, this old bridge gives visitors a beautiful view of Apple White Trailhead Park. When visitors look to find the name of this bridge, many are puzzled as to the bridge's name. This unique bridge is called the Donkey Lady Bridge. While the name sounds weird, only a few San Antonians know why that bridge received that name. On this episode of Hidden Histories, I will explore the tragic history behind the Donkey Lay Bridge and why some San Antonians don't dare walk on that bridge at the middle of night. I am your host, Streetlight Historian, and this is the legend of the Donkey Lady who guards the bridge at night. In 1917, the old Applewhite Road Bridge was built to help travelers cross the Medina River. The name was soon changed to Donkey Lane Bridge around the 1990s after the community's folklore became popular with the city of San Antonio. While there are many variations to the story, 
from a mother losing her children caused by an arsonist to a woman and her donkey being overthrown the bridge and drowning, one variation has always stuck out to me. In this version of the legend, the donkey lady is believed by some to have a Chinese origin. In this version of the legend, the donkey lady was attributed as unattractive due to a physical deformity. For this, she was deemed an outcast and was shunned from the community of the south side of San Antonio. The woman lived in a small, old shack near a bridge that is now named after her, the Donkey Lady Bridge. One night, the woman's house was caught on fire while she slept. The fire left the poor woman further disfigured, and she later died from her injuries. It has been reported in the past that her remains were buried at the Chinese graveyard that was previously mentioned in the last episode. While some argue that the Donkey Lady is a ghostly apparition, others claim that she is not a ghost, but a rare cryptid. A cryptid is a flesh and blood creature that has not yet been discovered by the scientific community, such as Bigfoot, Dogmen, Thunderbirds, and so on. Reported signs of the Donkey Lady can be traced back to the 1950s. From the 1950s to the 1980s, San Antonians from a variety of backgrounds claim to have seen a female humanoid donkey on the bridge. If the creature sees that you are in her territory, she will attack you for trespassing. One case involved a father, his son, and the son's friends who were camping near the bridge. While setting up for camp, they heard weird noises coming from some tall grass. Once the father saw what was behind the grass, he immediately yelled at the teenagers, telling them to get into his truck and leave everything behind. As soon as they all got into the truck, the figure appeared right in front of the truck. From their accounts, it looked like a female humanoid donkey with deformed hands. It yelled at them and jumped on the hood of the truck. The father was back camp as fast as he could to get out of the campsite. The creature, while screaming at them, began hitting the windshield and almost destroyed it. When the father made a quick reverse turn, the creature fell off of the hood. As the truck was driving away from the camping location, his son looked back and saw that the creature was still chasing them. The son described that the creature looked angry and was doing everything she could to catch up to them. Once they were far away from the bridge, the creature stopped running and kept watching them as they drove off. After this encounter, the legend began to grow, and the number of eyewitnesses rose. From the 1960s to the 1980s, many San Antonian high schoolers were soon warned by their parents to never go near that bridge. The decade that saw the most signs of the Dawkins Lady was during the 1970s. Once the 1980s had passed, the sightings of this mysterious creature began to dwindle. By the 2000s, it seemed that the sightings of the donkey lady were very rare. From the 2000s to the 2020s, the donkey lady bridge has not seen much paranormal activity. In the year 2005, the donkey lady bridge was removed from its original location and moved more eastward in hopes to ease traffic with the Toyota manufacturing plant. Then, by the late 2010s, the bridge was made off-limits to pedestrian traffic and only park-goers are allowed to walk on the bridge. As of 2021, there has been no signs of the donkey lady. It could be very possible that this cryptid could have either moved to a different location or may have passed away. Either or, this location can be indeed a spooky place to visit, especially during the night. Could the donkey lady exist? We may truly never know. But one thing is for sure. The locals believe this creature to be real and warn visitors to never trespass the Donkey Lane Bridge unless you would like to encounter her yourself. And 